you know, I think the best way that I can contribute and what my legacy is going to be is how can I live my life the best way by example? And then also at the same time, how can I allow other people to really kind of see the light? Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and I am so excited about today's guest. I know you're going to love him. Dr. Need Darko is a board-certified general surgeon who is pushing the limits of the status quo. He hosts Docs Outside the Box, an Apple Podcast Top 100 in the Careers category, where he highlights stories of doctors doing extraordinary things outside of medicine to inspire doctors to think outside the box. Dr. Nidarka holds a Doctor of Osteopathic Medicine from Kansas City University and an MBA in Healthcare Leadership from Rockhurst University. He completed his general surgery residency at Morehouse School of Medicine and also a Trauma Surgical Critical Care Fellowship at the University of Miami. Dr. Nee, welcome to the show. Dr. Richard, thank you for having me here. I'm really excited to be here. So this interview has been a long time coming. We've actually talked about this for, I think, over seven months. So I'm really excited that this day is finally here. And so I want to start talking about how you got down this path because you you went down this traditional medical path like everyone's supposed to do. You went to medical school and you did your internship and you did your residency and you, your fellowship and all these things. But as you were moving through the healthcare system, there were some things that that bothered you. So let's let's talk about kind of that transformation you went through. Yeah. So basically, I, I grew up in New York City, Queens, New York, and um, this is around the mid '80s. You got to imagine, like I grew up in uh, right near Shea Stadium, so. This is 85, 86. The Mets were great. The Giants were great. And literally, when the Mets won the championship, you literally could see from my, my uh, balcony where we lived in Left Rack City, you can see Shea Stadium and every, everybody celebrating. But you know, as much as I was really excited about that, the things that really got me excited were you know, the concept of like Heathcliff Huxtable, the Cosby Show, just that concept of you know, a, a guy who's just you know, a, a family guy. He's got you know, his practice in his basement. He's got a beautiful wife, kids, and just having this practice in, in Brooklyn, that was something that really resonated for me and resonated with me. And I don't know if it's because of the stability. I don't know if because, you know, he was on TV, whatever it was, that was just like the concept of being a doctor that I wanted. And then obviously, you know, Dookie Hauser and all these other things come on and you're like, yeah, that's what I want to be. So long story short, you know, I, I decided that I'm going to have the single-mindedness of purpose and I'm going to go after it. And I go through all the credentials and I get all the success and the qualifications and I get there and I realize that, you know, I missed so many funerals, I missed so many weddings, I missed so many events. You know, to this day I say I literally missed out on the six from the age of sixty to the age of seventy. I missed out on that for my parents. You know, and I started realizing like, yeah, I'm gonna be a great surgeon. I feel like what I'm doing, I'm helping people, but I just felt like for me from that standpoint, like who am I? 
Like there's a difference between being, you know, having success and then there's a difference between being fulfilled. And um, I just wasn't feeling fulfilled anymore. Um, And I felt like the things that I really, you know, that really, you know, stuck, struck at my heart about being a physician, you know, having autonomy and so forth, it just wasn't there anymore, at least in my eyes. Um, so I just realized that I couldn't spend the next like 10, 20, 30 years doing this exactly the way how, you know, everybody in the past was practicing medicine. I had to do something different. Um, so at that point, I decided to kind of just go in a different direction. There was a fork in the road. And as Yogi Berra says, I took it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I kind of just, I kind of just made things up on my own. And I first, first things first is I started um, doing temp work as a physician at, you know, really rural and uh, suburban era areas and suburban hospitals um, and started kind of figuring out what my self-worth was. Um, and then at the same time, I started really reconnecting with family and reconnecting with the things that, you know, I really, you know, cherish, you know, I'm a brother, I'm a father, or I was a husband at that moment. So those are the things that kind of just started me down this path. Um, and since then, I've had no regrets. And I'm sure we'll get into it later in the show, but it's been one of those, you know, kind of eye awakening type moments, right? That I'm glad that I figured out now in my mid thirties and now 40, as opposed to in my sixties. I'm curious when you were watching the Huxtables and you're watching Doogie. So how old were you at that time when you're having these thoughts? That's the life I want to model. Right. You know, so, you know, I'm think the Cosby show came out like in 84. So I think it ran from like 84 to 89 or something like that. So were you... How old I, was were like, you? I was like six years old. Like, so that's pretty young. So you yeah. really knew at a young age that you wanted to be a physician. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to be a physician. You know, and it wasn't completely solidified. I was like, ah, oh, maybe I'm an astronaut or so forth. But you got to remember, like, you're seeing this show on a weekly basis. It's killing it on the ratings, you know. Like, you know, as an African-American, you know, this is something you don't really see that many type of figures like this on TV. So you're just like, oh, even more so. This is really interesting. Let me watch this. I, if he can do it, I can do it. And uh, so, yeah, at a very young age, and then also let's throw in the fact that, you know, I'm a first generation immigrant. My parents are from uh, Ghana, West Africa. They're blue collar. And, you know, anybody who knows, anybody's from an immigrant background knows, like when you first come to a country, when they first come to the country, stability is the most important thing, right? So the most important thing that most family members, parents press upon their children is find something like being a doctor, be a lawyer, be a, uh, a, an engineer, because that's the most stable thing. Things like right now, like it's amazing. Like I'm so jealous right now of my nephews and nieces or millennials because like they can afford to, you know, be entrepreneurs or anything like that. Like we didn't have that type of leeway, so to speak, when I was growing up. You had to pick something very stable. So that's the other reason why I kind of steered myself into that direction is this is stable. You can have a comfortable life. I can take care of myself also. One of the things that's also interesting that you said, and and it certainly resonated with me that you you talked about success versus fulfillment and how oh, yeah. much how much oh, yeah. time of your life yeah. that you miss. I think anybody who has earned a postgraduate degree would identify with that, but so would a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, that who are working these 80 to 100 week uh, you know, deals to try and build something for their family. But what really struck me that's interesting that you said was that as you were going through your training, as you were kind of hitting the check boxes that every doctor does you were starting to try and figure out your self-worth. And so I'm curious if you could expand on that because one would think that in a given, you know, you had a very solid goal from the age of six and, you know, obviously uh, the actor who played Dr. Huxtable wasn't a great person in real yeah. life. We learned many years later, exactly. but, the, but the TV character was an amazing role model. And so, you know, you, you had the, the working class parents 
who instilled these hard, you know, these values uh, in, into you. Where where do you think the gap was in terms of your self worth, and, and how did you begin putting that together to make sense for you and, and improve that? So, Doctor Richard, you're you're familiar with the whole process. For the the listeners who aren't, you know, like the entire process of one getting into medical school, then being in a medical school, then becoming a doctor and going through training is literally, you know, like a ten year hazing process. Am I lying? You know, like literally, like, are you worthy enough to get into medical school? It's extremely difficult to get into medical school. It's extremely difficult to get into grad school. It then from that standpoint, you're begging someone to let you into their residency training, particularly if you're looking at something that's really competitive, i.e. we're talking about surgery, radiology, neurosurgery, pediat- you know, pediatrics, or any of those type of things that people think of as, oh, those are the sexy type of specialties. They're very competitive. So you're literally begging to get into that. So you feel like, you know, you feel like someone has bestowed something onto you, you know, just by the fact that you worked really hard, but don't get too cocky, right? You could always get kicked out. Then when you're in residency, that's after you become a doctor, you're training, you start from the bottom up. And, you know, the, the, what they say is true. Like, you know, blank rolls downhill, like as an intern all the way going up to your chief year, like you just go through various, you know, you know what to get to a point where you can, can be a fully accomplished, uh, fully uh, board certified uh, surgeon or whatever you may be. So you go through all these different moments where they are just picking at your confidence, you know, pimping you on the side, asking you questions, making you feel like you, know, you don't really have that self-worth. And unless you already come in with a lot of confidence, you know, it's, it's really hard to kind of keep that, you know, that confidence going. Um, and I've seen even the most confident of people come in and still at the end come out feeling like, hmm, I'm not sure if I can do this, or I'm not sure if I can do that. I'm not sure if I should ask for this. The other thing too is, I don't know if you've noticed that throughout this entire time, I never talked salary. So the other thing is they never teach you in medical school the, the business part of medicine, how much money you should expect, how much money you really should be getting from a reimbursement standpoint. If you go into private practice, this is how much you should be paying your staff. This is how much you should be keeping in. We never have that discussion whatsoever. It's always this altruistic, in which it is, noble, nobility, you know, naive, you're helping anybody and no matter what, which is true. But also at the same time, you got to turn the lights on, right? Like you got to be able to pay for certain things. So that, that concept of basically, you know, not having that much confidence, always someone, you're never really comfortable. And then also at the same time, you know, you're not really having those conversations about what your salary is, what you really should be bringing in, you know, it tends to, to have this whirlwind, this this perfect storm of you just realizing like, well, what am I really worth? Like, am I here just to work and that's it? So um, that's where I kind of figured out when I started seeing other people doing it, particularly people who are doing temp work and realizing how much a hospital will actually pay for a surgeon to work in you know, a rural portion of Kansas, how much they would really pay. That's when I started to realize, oh, this is how much actually I bring to the table, right? And then you start to combine that with the fact of, Okay, well, now that I can work this hard, I actually don't have to work for the next two weeks, possibly. That means I can go to my parents' you know, church with them. I can go to this event. I can go to that event. You start putting all these things together. You're just like, wait, I know what's important to me. I know that getting a good salary is important to me. And I also know that also spending time with my family is important. And that's where that self-worth starts to come in. You're like, you know what? You start saying no to certain things more because you have the confidence and you realize that, hey... If, it, if you see in this one example that the hospital A can pay this, then why can't hospital B pay that, right? And that's where the whole self-worth notion came from. 
that totally makes sense to me. And I, and I think that's certainly translatable to any industry and somebody, whether they're starting out on their own uh, as an independent contractor working for somebody else, knowing what you're worth relative to the market. And then also, I, I like that you highlighted the fact, and this goes back to your success versus fulfillment comment, that by really valuing yourself, it enabled you to have the opportunity to not only say no to things, but to spend more time making meaningful moments with others. Yeah. yeah. You can't have that time back. And um, I'm serious. Like, it's one of those things that I just fully regret. You know, like you look at pictures and you're like, mom, I, I don't remember this. They're like, yeah, you were in med school during that time. You know, like I literally don't remember like four years worth of pictures or five years worth of pictures. And, you know, at first you joke about it and laugh, but you look back and you're just like, man, like that's kind of sad, right? Um, but it's also, it's, it's, it's an amazing thing. I, I, was succeed, you know, I was very successful during that time, but you know, those are times when I wanted to, you know, be closer to family and so forth. So it's almost like, have you ever seen that movie Rewind with Adam Sandler? I recall it, but I don't think I've seen it. But basically, it's a movie where he discovers his remote control and he basically, it's this magical remote control and he can fast forward through his life. And he was able to do all these different things with his business and still at the same time, you know, spend time with family. The one thing that he didn't realize and what like there was like some magical fairy who was able to show him what he looked like when he would use his, his remote control was he was present, but he wasn't paying attention. So people would talk to him and he would just be like, mm-hmm, yeah, and just move on. Right. And he was able to build this great business, but he was estranged from his wife, estranged from his family, you know, and things like that kind of resonate with me. Cause I'm just like, I wonder if that's the type of, you know, uh, feeling that my family got from me during those 10 years, you know? So it makes total sense to me. And it also leads me to kind of this next question, because I can see as we're talking the evolution of how you're moving forward in your thinking, you know, you, you're now running one of the top 100 podcasts, uh, you know, Docs Outside the Box, and you're really excited to share stories of doctors who are doing amazing things outside of medicine. Was there a point as you're, even though, you know, you're doing things on your term, you're, you know, you're, or your terms and you're contracting and you're having the time, but in terms of where you felt medicine was as a whole, and in terms of not only where medicine is as, as a whole, but in terms of where it was going and the, the profit first mindset of the, the medical field, because that's what a lot of people, certainly I, you know, a lot of my colleagues are frustrated and, and have talked about, you know, that we get into this to help people, but there's so many things that red tape and things that get in the way of that. So when did you start really feeling like that was too much and starting to make a shift towards helping people in different ways. So I, I just, I, it, it definitely, I started feeling that in residency. So when I started to see and understand how clinic worked and billing worked, we talked about this before we started recording. I did my residency at Grady Memorial Hospital, which is a large uh, inner city hospital, one of the largest trauma centers in the country, um, huge indigent population. That is a population that doesn't have uh, much resources and definitely insurance. And just understanding how the hospital was getting paid, how much charity care was putting out there, and just kind of understanding how profits worked, and then taking that and comparing that to another hospital when I really started working on my own, how much money they were bringing in, how much money they were able to get from trauma patients and so forth, you really start to realize, wow, like when I was at at Grady Hospital, all I had to worry about literally was taking care of them, giving them the best care as possible as as uh, possible. When I went to hospital B and C and D, wow, like it really is. How quickly can I get them out of hospital? How much little antibiotics do I need to use? And some of them make sense, um, but it really was, like you said, profit first. 
So for me, you know, I realized that, look, you know, I think the best way that I can contribute and what my legacy is going to be is how can I live my life the best way by example? And then also at the same time, how can I allow other people to really kind of see the light? And the best way that I can help people see the light is not anything revolutionary, but just literally telling stories of what other doctors are doing who feel the same way or have gone through the same things and are very happy and very capable in what they're doing in the hospital, but literally are able to have a huge impact outside of the hospital, right? So whether you're able to do medical humanitarian work in, you know, in portions of Africa or war-torn areas in the world, or if you're able to be on TV and be a medical journalist like Dr. Oz or Dr. Gupta, where you can treat people and look at people um, or look at how you're taking care of people on a larger scale as opposed to a one patient at a time basis, or maybe you're coaching other doctors through physician burnout, or maybe you're starting a podcast, or maybe you're an entrepreneur. Like these, this is going to be my legacy. Like my legacy is showing light that doctors can do more than just help one patient at a time in a hospital or in a clinic. We literally can affect society as a whole. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. I know international humanitarian work is something that's very important to you. Talk to us about your experiences doing that and in what ways that's impacted you. Yeah, so I I call it medical humanitarian work or basically, quote unquote, a professional reboot. And the reason why I say that is um, if you go to any other country, um, you know, medicine is, particularly third world countries, medicine is not as specialized or subspecialized um, as it is here in the United States. So, you know, a general surgeon basically in another country can do everything from you know, taking out, you know, anything that you can think of, including doing C-sections, right? Like you don't, you don't see that here in the United States. So when I go and I do my, my work with my wife, she's an OB, we go to Ghana, which is where I'm from, and I get a chance to see my family. Um, but it's an opportunity to provide care um, to people who otherwise would never get this type of care. They will come and walk miles away. They will wait hours um, because you can only do so many surgeries in a day. They don't care. The other thing too, obviously, is there, in, the amount that, first of all, the, the ability to find the weight, but also like things that we don't think of is like their pain tolerance, right? Like we, we can only bring so much pain medications with us, but like the ability for them to have surgery and then you give them certain medications, and you're just like, wow, like if I was in the United States, I would have to like literally double, triple that pain medication. And, and it's not saying that we're not giving them adequate pain control. It's just like, it's a different mindset, right? Obviously, the litigation issues are not that big of an issue in this country, or excuse me, in that country as compared to this country. The patients, to me, seem a lot more grateful. So that's why I say it's as close to a professional reboot as possible. Like you feel like you're practicing medicine the way it was purely meant to be practiced. And oftentimes, I actually learn more from going on these trips 
than actually me teaching the doctors over there. Like they do things in ways in which we don't do anymore because we have so much technology, you know? So, you know, we have so many different things that we can use that are very expensive here in the United States, tools, gadgets, meshes, and so forth. We don't really have that overseas. So you better know your surgical technique really well. So I learn a lot from them. And um, for me, it's one of the greatest things that I think anybody can do. Um, I encourage people, even listening to this podcast, if you have an opportunity, it doesn't even have to be a medical humanitarian trip. Just in some form or fashion, find a way to give back. Um, obviously, in the United States, if you can, but if you can make it out of the country, it's an extremely rewarding process. And oftentimes, you think that you're helping other people, but you oftentimes find out that you're helping yourself also. That's so, that's so true. And one of the things that I was thinking about as you were talking is there's a book by a doctor named Alberto Violdo. And I believe he was a, a psychologist or psychiatrist. I can't recall which specifically, but he was dying and he was diagnosed with untreatable, I believe untreatable cancer, if I recall correctly. And he went down to somewhere in South or Central America and the indigenous healers there or this was a guy who, you know, Western medicine said he had like three months to live, healed him completely. So I'm curious, you know, you mentioned that, you know, we do things here because we have the technology, they do things in these third world countries that are very different. Have you come across, you know, indigenous medicine or ways of doing things that they wouldn't do in the United States that have really influenced the way you think about medicine overall? Um, that's a tough question. So um, I'll tell you, I'll leave it to you like this. If they could have the resources that we would have, that we have, they would use it. I'll be honest with you about that, which makes you start to think like the, the outcomes that they're able to get are still really Im- impressive, right? Um, but I do think that if we were able to take some of our resources over there, I do, I do think that they would use it. But I have not come into like any indigenous or any... Um, type of traditional medications that I would use and bring back here. I do think though that the use of resources has, or the lack of resources has helped me to become a lot more of a miserly, um, use more of my clinical tactics as opposed to always relying on imaging, always relying on labs, um, always relying on, you know, IV fluids and antibiotics when you really don't need that when you especially see <laughs> what people can go through and what people can survive in other countries. Um, so I think from from that standpoint, it helps me to become here in the United States more miserly uh, in that regard. That makes sense. And, and certainly, you know, having the limited resources, you're much more judicious about how you would dole them out. Uh, I know you mentioned that this was so rewarding for you. Every time you go over there is a rewarding experience and there's you know, personal growth as well as helping people. Is there any one story, I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit, is there any story that's top of mind that you could think of where you know you were over in Ghana and, and really impacted you in an incredibly powerful way? Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's actually, it's more of, um, you know, it's, it's really more of something you start to realize like what you take for granted in different countries or particularly here in the United States. So we did a surgery on a woman. So she underwent anesthesia. Um, so obviously anesthesia, they were breathing for her. They took care of her pain. But oftentimes, as, you, as your audience can remember or can think of, once you do surgery, oftentimes a surgeon is done, he walks away, and then the anesthesiologist is waking up the patient. And a lot of times it takes about two to three hours for all that anesthetic to wear off, okay? And oftentimes, you know, we don't know, but the anesthesiologist is giving certain medications to help those medications wear off a lot quicker, right? Take that for granted in the United States. So we did the surgery. We checked on the patient maybe an hour afterwards. She was doing well. 
And then me and my partner, we went about 20 minutes away to the hotel and we're eating. And then next thing you know, like two hours later, we get a phone call saying that the patient that we operated on is not waking up. She's not breathing. Um, we need to come by quickly. So we scoot over there and literally she is still like there. They have a bag mask on her, right? If you can imagine like CPR and then putting a mask over the face and breathing for her. So basically the, the anesthesia hasn't, hadn't worn off of her yet. And she was still very weak. She wasn't able to take in a big deep breath. And as a result, she was holding on to carbon dioxide and she just wasn't able to be awake, right? We call that hyper, hypercarbia. So the first thing I asked for was a medication that literally you can buy for like 15 cents here in the United States, right? I said, let's have some Narcan, right? As a, people who are, aware, who are a, a familiar with the whole opioid um, addiction issue here in the United States, they're probably familiar with Narcan. So I said, oh, just give her some Narcan. Let's go. They're like, yeah, we don't have that here. I was like, okay, well, go to the pharmacy and go get Narcan. Yeah, none of the pharmacies here are... First of all, the pharmacies... This is like 8 o'clock at night. The pharmacies are either closed or they don't carry it. The closest place that has the pharmacy is this larger hospital that's 20 minutes away. And I'm looking at my partner like, wait, what? So we're bagging this woman to make sure we're getting enough oxygen. We had to pay um, one of the uh, nurses to get on a motorcycle, go through town, go to the next hospital, purchase this medication, get on a motorcycle and come back, gave the medication to the woman, literally within anybody's familiar with Narcan, within 15 to 30 seconds, she's awake with it. And, um, you know, she was okay. We, you know, didn't have to bag her anymore and she did fine, right? And it wasn't until that moment where you realize you're like, wow, like this is really, really, like you really start to realize how lack of resources really can affect people's care, right? Like if we weren't there or, you know, who knows, like this lady would have just died. But the medication costs like the equivalent of like a dollar. Right. And her life is saved now. So it just really puts into perspective, like, first of all, how, you know, how precious life is, um, but also at the same time, just how chance moments really can determine your life, also. Right. So that really put things into perspective for me. I become a lot more appreciative when I come back to the United States. I, you know, you just start to real, really realize how lucky we are here in the United States and how when you go to a different country, like sometimes just chance really just affects, you know, your life. It's very interesting the way you describe that. And it's it's just so, I imagine it was just so matter of fact, oh, Norcan, let's get Norcan. And then it isn't there. And you had to go through these series of steps and this woman on a motorcycle who literally saved this woman's life because right. you were able to solve that solution, or solve that problem rather. Something that you said that's interesting too, you you mentioned, and, and I did want to go here with you, uh, the opioid crisis that, that's in this country. So a lot of people have a lot of different opinions as to where we need to be with this and how we can start making improvement there. What's, what's your take? And given everything that you've seen and working in these different countries, what would be your approach to tackling this crisis in this country? It's a tough question. This is a really tough question. Sometimes I even say it's outside of my pay range. But, you know, for example, pain is a relative... It's a relative uh, uh, concept, right? Like if you punch me in the shoulder versus I punch you to the shoulder, you're going to relate your pain level way differently than how I'm going to relate my pain level. That's just a fact, right? So when I say that people in other countries, particularly the country that I was at, they have higher pain tolerances, I'm not saying that they're just tougher or anything like that. I'm just saying that the expectations 
of pain medication and how we're able to take care of pains is a lot different than here in the United States. Here in the United States, people just expect your pain is going to be taken care of. You should have no pain whatsoever. And I think that mindset mindset has kind of contributed, obviously, to the issue that we are in right now. Obviously, there are some issues that I'm not talking about in terms of, you know, doctors providing pain medications, pharmaceutical companies, you know, and how they market to doctors and so forth. That's for a different conversation. You know, I do think that a lot of it has to do with mindset. I do think a lot of it has to do with perspective. And I do applaud what, you know, the Department of Health is doing and what the previous Surgeon General, you know, really made opioid addiction a big issue and making sure that doctors who particularly take care of patients who are on pain medications for an extended period of time really start to have these these difficult conversations with the patients about their expectations for pain, as well as these contracts to say, hey, look, if you continue to still have pain and we're giving you these medications, maybe we need to try something different. And maybe we do need to consider other things. There are such things as cannabinoids, you know, like medical marijuana. There there are other things that we could consider also that we just in the past have been so stigmatized that I think it's fair enough to say that it's worth having that conversation right now because the status quo right now obviously is not working. Um, so it's a very interesting time, I think, to really start thinking about, you know, one, our concept of pain and how much pain we should expect to be in. Two, you know, what the doctor's role play, what do doctors and what their role is in taking care of pain not even just from how people expect doctors to take care of pain, but even vice versa. Um, and then also at the same time, should we start considering other things, cannabis, you know, other types of medications that don't have that opioid quality to it also. Um, so it's, it's one of those things that I don't have a definitive answer for, but it's, it's going to be really interesting. But I'm glad that we're having that conversation now. So you're saying you're you're not running for Surgeon General. You don't want to be nominated for Surgeon General. <laughs> tough job. That's a tough job. Actually, <laughs> right. I'm actually trying to get the current uh, U.S. Surgeon General on my show to talk about just his life because it's. It, I think it's it's a really fascinating um, job right now. Right? It's a really fascinating job. Um, I'd like to get his concepts of being a doctor who is working, con- you know, who practices in a concrete manner. Right? You either have this disease or you have this. And that's it. And then in some regards, you have, you're in an administration that kind of denies certain things, right? So it's just interesting to, 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 to get that concept. How do you handle those type of things? And is there any pressure, so to speak? And in, in general, what does a U.S. Surgeon General do anyway? That's the conversation I'm interested in having with him. Well, I, I look forward to that episode for sure. And as we're nearing the end, that's a great segue. Tell us a little bit more about your show. Oh, thank you. So Docs Outside the Box is about ordinary doctors who are doing really extraordinary things outside of medicine. So if you want to find out how Dr. Sanjay Gupta became Dr. Sanjay Gupta, if you want to find out how the current U.S. Surgeon General became the current U.S. Surgeon General, um, if you want to just know about entrepreneurship, if you want to know about living outside the box, if you want to just be inspired, um, then this show is for you. Um, It comes out every Monday. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, anywhere where you can get your favorite uh, podcast. That's exactly where you can find it. Um, you could also get there to get there via my website at drneedarko.com forward slash podcast. Love it. And we'll have the links to everything that's Dr. Nee in his show notes for the episode at thedailyhelping.com as well as in the Daily Helping app available in iTunes and in the Google Play Store. Well, Dr. Nee, this was a great conversation. I knew that it would be. As you know, I wrap up every episode by asking my guests a single question, and that is, what is your biggest helping, the most important piece of information you'd like somebody to walk away with after hearing our conversation today? The biggest helping that I have to say and what I want the audience to come away with is just start. 
That's it. Very simple. Just start. Whatever it is that you're really concerned about, whatever it is that you wanted to do, any dream that you ever wanted to do, you know, oftentimes we let fear get in the way or we let procrastination or insecurity get in the way of us, you know, dreaming or taking the first step. So now what I say now is whenever I get nervous about anything, I acknowledge it and I just start. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be perfect. It's not going to be perfect. And as you all, most people know, the enemy of good, the enemy of getting things done is, is perfection. I've thrown that by the wayside. And now I tell everybody, look, if there's something that you've always wanted to do, just do it. If you fail, it doesn't matter. Pick back up, and start again. I love it. Dr. Nee, give us that URL for your website one more time. It's Dr. Nee Darko. So D-R-N as in Nancy, I-I-D-A-R-K-O.com. Fantastic. Dr. Nee, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I loved our discussion. Thanks for having me on, man. It's a great show. I appreciate that. And I appreciate each and every one of you who tune in each week and listen to our show. If you like what you heard, go subscribe to it on iTunes and leave us a five-star review because this is what helps other people find the podcast. But most importantly, go out there today and do something nice for someone else, even if you don't know who they are, and post it in your social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others. 